Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Thank you, choir, for the reminder that our God will not be moved. What a great anthem to set up our text for today. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 40 and 41. The way we've been working this series that we're in called Joseph, and the series before that called Patriarchs and Matriarchs, is that we're moving through the book of Genesis, and each week I'll let you know what chapters to read and The following Sunday, a sermon emerges from one of those places in the chapter. Today, the assignment was chapter 40 and 41. Next week is chapter 42. And as we have prepared, I know some of you are reading, some of you have even been doing what I suggested our first Sunday, which is um, dress colorfully as we talk about Joseph, this one who had a multicolored soul and wore clothing to demonstrate his multicolored soul, the coat of many colors, we said. But I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't think about taking it up another level. Christina, the, I'm telling you, I think, I think you have set a new bar for us. I'm digging it. I challenge anybody in here uh, to dress, or and by dress, that, that means clothing or do to be as, as colorful uh, in our time together as the readings that we, that we are um, studying. So, chapter 40, chapter 41. And you'll remember that we have been walking with Joseph for some time. This, this one who has something alive in him, and it's so alive it can't be hidden. Why put it under a bushel basket, Right? We noticed that this kid was so full of something, so full of the energy of God, call it a dream, call it a vision, call it the kingdom of God. There was an aliveness in him that his father noticed and put a coat on him with many colors to demonstrate on his exterior the thing that was alive on the interior. But we noticed that early in his life as he began to talk about that thing that he sensed in him, that aliveness of God, we noticed that not everybody bought into it. Sometimes that's the trouble with sharing who we really are with those around us, even those who are close to him. His own brothers didn't buy it. His own brothers beat him up, sold him into slavery down in Egypt. And and we've been watching and we have been reflecting since last week that regardless of the ups and downs of Joseph's life, we're watching how God's relentless presence and God's subversive love is always with him. We have been saying thus far that regardless of his circumstances, God seems to constantly be with him. Today I want to take it to a new level because I want to suggest that it's not just regardless of our circumstances that God's relentless love can be found, but because of them, through them, in the midst of, 
all of the circumstances that make us call into question if God is even nearby. It's in the midst of those that God demonstrates, especially in the life of Joseph, that God really is near. So we've been anchoring our study on a New Testament verse, Romans 8, 28, that reads this way. We know that in all things God works for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. And I don't know if there can be a more appropriate sermon, graduates, seniors, uh, soon-to-be graduates. I don't know there could be a more appropriate conversation to have than the one we're about to have today. Because in the next few weeks, if not already, you're going to be hearing speeches from people who care about you and love you, and, and, and they're going to sound like this. Y'all are awesome. You can do everything. You can conquer the world. Okay? Like I heard somebody say a minute ago, you can discover fire. You're going to hear all of these, these wonderful speeches about how you can conquer life, and great. Let us know how that goes. But I want you to hear something from your pastor who loves you, and that is this. Yes, go. Chase it. Conquer it. Create. But there's something else I want you to hear. You will fall. You will fail. You'll fall flat, and some, you will break something. You'll break a plan, you'll break a relationship, you'll, you'll break a dream. Something will happen and, and there'll be pieces of it around your feet. Trust me. <laughs> but it's in those moments, not despite them, but because of them, that God's relentless presence and God's subversive love will never leave you, ever. When we say this phrase here, we know that in all things God works for good. We mean all things. And Joseph demonstrates that there is no thing in which God's presence cannot be found at work, lifting us up, putting things back together. And we begin today with where we left off last week. Last week we saw him taken to jail. He was taken to prison because Potiphar's wife framed him, tried to seduce him, he resisted her, he charged her or she charged him with an attempted rape and so Pharaoh or Potiphar rather throws him into prison and that's where we ended last week. He's in prison. And so we pick up the text in chapter 40 when things could not get any worse. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued for some time in custody. Stop there for just a moment. So he's in prison, and he has two new prison mates, two cellmates who come in, and these are those who are in the, the work the, of, the, of the Pharaoh himself, maybe part of his council, part of his, his cabinet. And they did something that offended Pharaoh, and we don't know what it is. We don't know what the crime was, and it really doesn't matter. All we know is that now they are in the same prison where Joseph finds himself, a cupbearer, and a baker. And we're told, curiously enough, 
that Joseph is put in charge of them, in charge of their care, which is, shouldn't surprise us by now because as we settled last week, every time life presses him down, something in him raises him up. So even in the pit of prison, he's raised up and given responsibility because there is something in you that you can't hide. There is something in you that no matter what you do to try to cover it up, it will live. It is a treasure in clay jars. I'm reminded of a verse of Scripture in James chapter 1. It reads this way. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. I love that. Because here's the multicolored soul, Joseph, who under pressure is forced to reveal who he really is. He's rising to the top. And we're told that the cupbearer and the baker join him in prison. Now, you know what a baker is. A baker bakes. Thank you. A cupbearer, however, is, is a little more. A cupbearer was actually more like a bodyguard to Pharaoh like part of Pharaoh's secret service. It's true, they carried the cup and they tasted everything that Pharaoh would eat so as to make sure there was no poison, no one is trying to assassinate Pharaoh. So the cupbearer had a pretty prestigious job. But I, before we move into the rest of the text, I gotta tell you, there's something in this passage that's provocative to me. Now, when you read the Bible, you gotta be careful not to impose your own interp interpretations upon the text. You let the text speak for itself you let the text do its own work you don't try to impose a meaning that may not be there but i gotta tell you this text which was pre-christian right as i'm reading it as a follower of christ i can't help but notice okay so you know a a baker holds bread a cupbearer holds wine can I get you to think about that image for just a moment? Bread and wine. And here Joseph is all alone, completely desperate, desolate, isolated, rejected at the bottom of the heap. And I'm reminded of the night before Jesus was crucified. He looked into the faces of those who were his closest and he said, I'm going someplace and you can't go with me. And they were terrified. They were terrified. So he takes a bread and he takes a cup and he says, look, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm so not going to leave you alone that I want you to have a very tangible way to remember it. I want you to eat bread. I want you to drink the wine. And every time you eat the bread and drink the wine, I want you to remember that within you is a presence that is so profound. It is my own presence. It's so mysteriously near you. You cannot possibly fathom how close I am. And I just find it provocative that here... Many, many generations before Christ, here is Joseph alone in the prison, and in walks two symbolic representations of what will be a future symbol to all Christians worldwide. You are not alone. Cup, bread, I am here. So we're told that they have an interesting night. They have a dream. We pick up the reading in verse number eight, verse number five. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own meaning. 
When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Why does Joseph care? Why would Joseph even even notice that their faces are downcast? Joseph has been in prison for what the text says was some time. The only thing that Joseph should have been worrying about was how hard and uncomfortable his bed is, how the insufficiently warm blanket with holes in it didn't keep him warm at night, how the the food that he gets every other day, if that, is bland and, 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 and dull. He had plenty to focus his own frustration upon, but yet in the midst of his own suffering and his own struggle, he notices the downcast faces of these other two. And it just, it, it's profound to me because it demonstrates a profound mystery in our faith. And here it is. Most of the time when we are hurting, we're going through a season and things are just falling apart, we're depressed, something has broken, we're going through a transition. Most of the time we typically say, okay, circle the wagons. Let's just focus on me and mine. But faith allows us to pay attention in a different way. The truth is, our suffering doesn't necessarily have to become an obstacle for loving. But rather, our suffering can become a pathway to love. Our suffering is is not an obstacle to love, but rather it's a pathway to love. And the reason I say that is this. Our suffering, when we hurt and struggle, there is a kind of solidarity in suffering. And Joseph is demonstrating it. There's a solidarity in suffering. And and if you want to test what I'm talking about, when you have broken your arm and you're wearing a cast, don't you notice others who are wearing casts more readily? Or if you're on crutches for whatever reason, or like several years ago when I had reconstruction on my foot and I was walking in a boot everywhere like this, you can't walk around like this without noticing others who are walking around like that. There is a solidarity in suffering. Here's why. When we suffer at any level, suffering sensitizes us to recognize the suffering of others. We are sensitized to recognize the suffering of others. It's as if something has happened in us that makes our eyes open and we see the hurt in someone else. And I've been thinking about that a little bit because as Joseph pays attention to others who are hurting, he turns his energies out of himself toward them which is not a bad suggestion for us. When you're down and you, and you are sad and you are broken, maybe you're depressed and you can't get out of it. Or maybe you've gone through a thing and you don't know what your solutions are. Maybe it's not a bad idea to turn the energy that you have in you away from you into serving others. This is why there are some people who have my highest respect, and that is those who are recovering addicts. Because recovering addicts are a gift to recovering addicts. They have cut through the cheese. (laughs) They have not cut the cheese. They have not cut the cheese. They have have cut. Can I start that over? They They have rid themselves of the bull. Of the bull. They don't pretend. There's no pretense. There's no pretension. 
They recognize a solidarity in suffering. I've been here, I am there, and I know that I can spend whatever part of me that I've got left in focusing on you, but you have to focus on someone else, and there's a partnership of solidarity in suffering. Joseph is at the bottom. And instead of at the bottom saying, oh, why me? Somebody come and serve me, lift me up. He demonstrates what you and I should do, which is this. When you're down, figure out a way to serve somebody else. Turn it out. There's a great story of that in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is going around to the churches of Macedonia, and he's collecting this offering because the church in Jerusalem, the home church, the mothership church that started it all, they're going through a crisis, and they are being persecuted. And Paul is going to all these churches in Macedonia that were started because of the Jerusalem church and saying, hey, the mothership, it's, it's in trouble. Home church needs your, your help. They need aid. They need relief. But the trouble was, all the churches that he was going to, they were being persecuted too. They had plenty of their own problems. But in the midst of their own hurt, they became generous and gave to those who were hurting. In fact, this is the way Paul describes it in his text in 2 Corinthians. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. When you are at the bottom, turn outward and serve others. He paid attention to them. And this, the, the text continues. He says to them, uh, why are your faces downcast? And they pick up in verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, at this point, Joseph could have very well said, oh, wait a minute, your problem is dreams. Don't talk to me about dreams. You know what? Shh, just mm -mm. don't want to hear it. It's dreams that got me in this place. It's dreams that got me into trouble. Yeah, but we've had these just shh, had it. Don't, don't tell, talk to somebody else. But instead, Joseph recognizes, even in his hurting, a hurt that is deep in them, and he recognizes there's something in him that he can offer, not because he perfected some skill but because God put it there and he said look dreams belong to God so hit me laid on me and they described their dreams the cupbearer says yeah so look this was really weird it was bizarre I'm, I'm dreaming of this vine and there are three branches that come off this vine and then fruit and so I take the fruit and I'm squeezing it in my dream I'm squeezing the fruit into this cup and I'm handing this this cup uh, back, to, back to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, well, that's easy. The three branches symbolize three days. In other words, in three days, you'll get your job back. In three days, and he uses a phrase, Pharaoh will lift your head, which is a key phrase. In the Psalter, the Psalms, God is constantly lifting the head of the downcast. He says, yeah, in three days, he will lift your head, you'll get your job back, it's gonna be great, but when you do, remember me, Remember me to Pharaoh, which is interesting communion language again, isn't it? Vine, cup, fruit, remember me, take, eat, just saying. So he says, remember me, because tell Pharaoh that I shouldn't be here. This is not where I belong. Remember me, and the cupbearer says, absolutely, you got it. Well, when the baker is over here listening to this interpretation of the cupbearer, the baker says, oh, well, that sounds... That sounds great. Can I tell you my dream? Here, do me, do me. And he says, here's my dream. 
Yeah, it was, I, there was, I had these three baskets of baked goods, three bread baskets on my head. It was really weird. I, you know, it's only in dreams, I guess. And it's kind of, you know, Technicolor, Led Zeppelin was playing. It was very bizarre. I was kind of, and on top of these three bread baskets, there was on top this bread that I had baked for Pharaoh, but these birds were eating the bread out of the, the top bread basket. So Joseph says, okay, similar. In three days, Pharaoh will lift your head. And, and he said, oh, great. He said, yeah, not so much. And he continues, this is how he put it. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a pole and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And the baker is like, not what I had hoped to hear. Can you do it again? And sure enough, this is what happens. Three days later, Pharaoh has a birthday, and at his birthday, he forgives the cupbearer, gives him his job back, but he hangs the baker. And what's important to remember is not necessarily the details of these dreams at this point, but it's important to remember that Joseph is being seen now as one who can read dreams. And the scene closes on chapter 40, and if it were a movie, it would fade to black and imagine that Joseph is looking out the prison cell saying to the cupbearer, now you're gonna, you remember me, right, to Pharaoh? You're going to remember and, and tell him about the thing? And the, and the, and the cupbearer's like, oh yeah, no problem. Uh, talk to you soon. It fades to black. It opens back up on chapter 41, and there's a time stamp on the center of the screen. Two years later. Listen to how 41 begins. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Now, stop right there for a moment. I want us to feel the impact of that opening phrase. After two whole years, do you realize that, that Joseph thought he was coming back maybe in 45 minutes? Tell Pharaoh and get me out of this place. And then 45 minutes passed, and then a day passed, and a week passed, a whole week. And he's asking the guard, hey, have you heard from the, remember the guy and the cupbearer, and have you heard? No. A month passes. Any mail for me? No, none. Six months pass. 18, 24 months pass. Two years, and every day, nothing. Nothing. I don't know why. God took two years to do something. I don't know why it took two more years after he'd already been there for some time for God to do anything that changed his circumstances. Maybe there was something still left to be done in Joseph. I mean, we said he couldn't get any further down, but the truth is maybe on his interior there was still some work to be done because remember when you and I were introduced to him early on a few chapters back, he was a kind of cocky kid, right? confidence, kind of entitled. His father gave him the coat that said, I'm the supervisor, I'm in charge. Even though I'm the very youngest, I'm in charge of everybody. Along the way, maybe something in him needed to be emptied. Until the point that he gets to the place where he recognizes, I've got nothing left. I don't know why it takes two years or more. All I know is this, no hero story ever begins with strong and, and, and is a constant escalation to stronger, 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 best, great, great, greatest. 
No hero story that you can tell me about ever goes that way. It's not one constant escalation from great to greatest. Every classical hero story that you can think of, Gilgamesh, Odysseus, Hercules, Skywalker. No matter who you think of, there is always a strength that then falls down. That's what I'm talking about. Where you fall and you struggle and you come to the end of your capacity to save yourself. And when you come to the end of your resources and you got nothing left, it's then that you are potentially able to rise again. And maybe it took two years to empty something out of Joseph. All I know is this. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't like that. I don't. It sounds cruel. But every experience that I have personally known demonstrates this is true. Don't forget who Joseph's father was. It's Jacob, Jacob, who still walks with a limp. Do you remember why? Because he wrestled with God one night. And it changed him forever. It changed him for the better, gave him a new name, gave him a new perspective on who he was meant to be. But forever, because he wrestled with God, he limped. And the truth is, maybe it's true that God can't greatly bless until God deeply hurts. And sometimes it takes us a while, but I want to plant this thought into your mind. You cannot possibly fathom what God may be up to right now in your life that will take two, three, four years to come to fruition. You cannot possibly fathom the thing that maybe happened a year ago that is almost ready to come to fruition because God is constantly up to something in us even when it seems cruel and inhumane. So there he is. And now, two years deep, Pharaoh has a dream that nobody on the planet can interpret except a lonely, rejected, dejected, depressed prisoner can interpret so he calls him up chapter 41 verse 1 after two whole years pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the nile and there came up out of the nile seven sleek and fat cows and they grazed in the reed grass then seven other cows ugly and thin came up out of the nile and after them and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the nile the ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell back asleep and dreamed a second dream, and seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on the stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In order for us to understand the significance of the dream that Pharaoh dreamed, we have to know something about what goes on every year in that region. You have to understand something about the power and the symbolic power of the River Nile. The longest river in the world, 1,647 miles long from near the equator all the way into the Mediterranean. It fans out into this amazing delta with rich, fertile silt and soil that every year floods And as it floods, those who live in the region have perfected the capacity to channel that water and to control that water so that their economy, which is based on agriculture and grain, 
would be the strongest in the region. In the region. They were the breadbasket of the world because of this very reason. In addition to the power of the Nile, there was an east sultry wind that would come from the southeast uh, called the uh, Humsin. The Humsin is a wind that is so uh, sultry that it can change the temperature of uh, your environment as much as 50 or 60 degrees overnight. Like that. Wiping out crops, right? So understand, those two geological geographical details are underway. And so, like Freud would say, Pharaoh's dreaming about stuff that's already going on and in his world, in his dream world, he's trying to work it all out and he wakes up in a cold sweat because I can't figure out what all this is. The two very things that anchor our economy, agriculture, grain, and I'm here dreaming about something falling apart and I don't understand the first thing. And so he wakes up anxious. In fact, the text even says he's anxious, I think in verse 8, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And the reason it was troubled is because none of the magicians and none of the wise men could figure out what it was all about. They couldn't interpret it to him or for him. And it, so much is at stake. Even the very power of his authority as Pharaoh is at, at stake if he can't figure out what's about to go down. And then the cupbearer listens to Pharaoh and says, Ah, there was this guy. Ah, I forgot. I meant to. He is going to be so ticked. But I was supposed to tell you about him. He was in prison with me. He can interpret dreams. Maybe you should. And they call him up. They call him. They make sure he bathes. He shaves his head clean like all Egyptians at the time did. All the Egyptians around Pharaoh's court, at least, clean shaven, dressed in a particular way. And there he is, Joseph, standing before the king of the world, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I understand you can do something about this. You can interpret dreams. And Joseph's response is powerful. This is how he says it. He says, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He's standing before Pharaoh and says, I understand you have the capacity to help me out. No, it's not me. It's God. So that's something that two years in Egyptian prison will do for you. It brought him down to the place where he recognized he had to get rid of every illusion that he had something to offer, but rather it was God in him that had something to offer. There are some seasons of imprisonment in which our greatest gift is, our greatest liberation is this. We recognize that we can't give anything we've not been given. The only thing we have to offer is the thing that has been given to us by God. And he says, I'll tell you about your dream. So then Pharaoh summarized his dream, went through the whole detail again, and then this is what Joseph said. Okay, this is simple. He said, you've had these two dreams, but they're really the same dream. It's just kind of an emphasis. That's the way God does it. He gives two dreams when he wants to underscore it and put an exclamation point. Remember, it was Joseph who had two dreams as well. He says, piece of cake, Pharaoh, the seven fat cows and the seven plump grains they're the same thing. It means that there is coming seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance, the likes of which you have never seen so much good and prosperity that's about to hit you in these next seven years. But the seven skinny and the seven blighted that swallow up the first seven, it represents seven years of famine. Because on the heels of seven years of good, there will be seven years of famine, and it will be so devastating that you will even forget how good it was when it was good there'll be no memory of how good it was it will be that bad 
So what you really need to do is this. Find somebody who is discerning and smart and capable, communicates well, is clean-shaven, speaks with a Samaritan accent, who can organize this stuff for you. So that in the first seven years, this person can organize a way to store up grain so that in the second seven years, you'll still be uh, pr prosperous. Pharaoh said, this is crazy. Seriously? And he's, um, he's overwhelmed. And this is what he says. Pharaoh begins here in verse 18. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this? One in whom is the Spirit of God. So, now watch this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him with garments of fine linen and put gold chains around his neck and he had him ride in the chariot that was second in command. And they cried out in front of him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Do you realize what has happened? His dream has come true. Not his goals, not his business plan, not his objectives for the first 10 years of his adult life. No, but the dream that was put there by God that all the world would bow before him and he would serve in a powerful way has come true. But it came true in a way that was beyond his wildest imagination, which underscores the verse that anchors this whole conversation, beloved. In all things, God really is up to good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. That's Romans 8.28, and the fact is most of us in this room could probably quote 8.28. We could probably quote, if I made you stand up, you might be able to say, oh yeah, Romans 8.28, we know that, for in all things God works for good for those who are called according to God's purpose, who love God and who are called and so forth. But do you know Romans 8.29? Romans 8.29 follows all that about God being up to something, and this is what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Now, don't get hung up on that word predestined. Just kind of just run with it for a minute. Get hung up on the, the other word, conformed to his Son. The truth is God is always up to something in all things, but the truth is in the midst of those all things that are painful and devastating and full of suffering, God is up to conforming us into the image of his own son. The verse I read a moment ago from James chapter 1 read this way. It read, Consider a sheer gift, my friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure your faith life is forced into the open and shows us true colors. But what I didn't read earlier, I read to you right now. The very next verse is this. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. 
I don't know what you've got going on right now, and I don't know what it is that may be a burden to you or what kind of imprisonment you may feel emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, socially, whatever it may be, but know this, whatever it is that causes pain may be the pathway to your freedom. God is up to something. Don't quit on it too soon. Don't reject it. Don't resist it. Don't turn it away. But what if we could find a way to embrace the thing that God may be up to, even if we can't understand it right now? That's the prayer. Let's pray. God, this is the prayer, yeah, but this is the struggle. This is the trouble. Is that this is how you work. We wish you didn't. We prefer you to work on our schedule and according to our plans, using our methods, but you don't. Thank you. Because we recognize that if we can somehow yield to your wisdom, then even those moments that are unwanted and unwelcomed may be the pathways to our redemption and our salvation. Show somebody this day how to open their lives up to the mysterious work that you may be doing, even if we can't completely comprehend it. We welcome you now in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.